Well, I think we're going to have a great time this morning in God's Word because we are going to look at a great passage and we are going to hear one of, if not the greatest question ever asked. Not only that, it will be asked by the greatest person to have ever asked a question. Not only that, the implications, the ramifications that affect even us here in the 21st century will be great. And so that means we're going to be in the 16th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And I'll invite you to turn there with me now if you would. If you're just joining us, welcome. We're studying this gospel account together as a church, verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 16 today, so so glad you're here. If you find Matthew 16, you'll fit right in. The setting is Caesarea Philippi, and that may, may or may not mean a lot to you, but it actually should. So if you look at chapter 16, Verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. That's a big deal because it should cause you to almost have a scrunched up face. Because it, that's, that's not right. That, that, that's strange. That's, that's weird. So they've been in the northern region of Israel, in the Galilee area, but now Caesarea Philippi is even above that. And it is the land of idols. It's infamous for idol worship and idols. Even if you go there today and look at the archaeological remains, you'll say, oh, here's a a statue to this god, a statue to that goddess. Even before it was known as Caesarea Philippi, uh, it's been known by uh, the name of different gods or goddesses, even as the town. And so it's, it's strange, it's awkward, it's not right. Why in the world would Jesus take them there? I've likened it before to me as a pastor saying, uh, I'm going to take the pastoral staff on a spiritual retreat and we're, we're not going to go to Colorado Springs where everyone's a Christian. I kid. Uh, we're going to go to Las Vegas where no one is a Christian. I kid. You get the idea. What, what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi. I mean, it's got, it's got a bad reputation. And so it's meant to get our attention. You would think, one would think, if Jesus is going to ask one of the greatest questions ever, he wouldn't go to Caesarea Philippi. He would go where? He would go to Jerusalem. He would go to the capital city where the temple is, the capital city, the hub. That's where you would want to go or you'd think that's where you would go. Why would he be taking them somewhere else? I would suggest to you, and I'm in really good company, it's an indictment. It's speaking very badly. It's a condemnation upon the current spiritual state of the powers that be. Israel is so corrupt and so perverted and things are so backward. Jesus doesn't go where he would otherwise go. He goes to pagan McPaganville in Pat's language. This is puzzling. This is strange. He's going to say one of the greatest things ever as far as affirmation, greatest question in Caesarea, how they say it there because it's named after Caesar, Caesarea Philippi. How strange, very strange. So then we come to that great question or one of the great questions. It says in verse 13, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? is? That's not the greatest question, but it's a pretty good question. We're warming up. 
So he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And if he's using Son of Man in its technical, formal designation, as it is in Daniel chapter 7, he's saying this, who do people say that the Messiah is? Because in Daniel 7, Son of Man is an official title for the Messiah, the one who would rule and reign forever, uh, the one who would provide for his people, take care of his people, who would rule over all the nations of the earth forever. So that's Daniel 7, Son of Man. If he's using it that way, and I think he is, not everybody does. I think he's using it that way. He's saying, what's the word on the street? What, what, are, what are people talking about? And again, any serious-minded Jew at the time, maybe not any, but lots of them would be talking about Messiah, right? They want to be freed from oppression. They want to be freed from abuse. They, they want the Romans out of there. They want to be able to do what they want to do when they want to do it. They want to have the freedom they would have as a nation, as had been promised. So when's the Messiah coming? Who will deliver us? Who will free us? Who will protect us? And Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is. So what's the word on the street? What's the word at the dinner table? What's the word in the culture? What's the word in the marketplace? If there were a Pew Research Center then, what would they be saying? Survey says. And then the answers come. In verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So, important historical figures, right? Some people are saying, Elijah, some Jeremiah, a different prophet, maybe Ezekiel. These people who God has used significantly in, in the past, and apparently what they're thinking is, He's going to, to resurrect them, or He's going to send them from heaven in some unique, special sense. It's interesting. Now, if you only had that list to choose from, I know it's kind of a trick question because you all know that it's no one on that list. But if we had to just choose from that list, who, who maybe would you choose if you had to? If you don't know what you know, well, I, I think my first knee-jerk reaction might be Elijah. I think I might pick Elijah because in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 in the Old Testament... It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So we know Elijah is supposed to come. And so, still not the Messiah though, which is what Jesus is asking. But if I have to choose on that list, I'd say maybe Elijah. And then, then on second thought, some of you are probably ahead of me. In Matthew 11, Jesus tells us something about that Elijah. He says in Matthew eleven fourteen, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. So on second thought, I'm going to put my money down for John the Baptist. Because according to Jesus, interpreting the Old Testament prophecy, Elijah returning is not actually Elijah. It's John the Baptist who will fulfill the promise of Elijah. which I would like to talk about in hermeneutics class, but I won't do it right now. Fascinatingly enough. Hmm. But what's the problem with either one of those? The problem is, they're not Messiah. They're the ones who come before Messiah, right? They're, they're, they're the, as we call it in Christian vernacular, or borrowing from the Bible, they're the for, they're to be, John the Baptist is the forerunner, 
right? He's to come before, to make the path straight, warning everyone, telling everyone, announcing, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These are all forerunners. They're not messiahs. And so let's, let's conclude this before we move on. They're seeing great people and mistaking great people for the greatest person. That's what's happening here. And as an application, I would suggest to you that this is how things operate a lot of times. We mistake great people who are are duly great and we turn them into messianic figures. And we ought not do that. Even all of these prophets would say, no, 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 no. It's him, not me. So for what it's worth, I want to stick that in my mind and say, that seems to be something that plagues humanity. He's asking who do people say the Messiah is and they're naming possible or potential or likely forerunners, not the actuals. Then things move, then things get more spicy, okay? We're, we're getting closer to the, to the great question. And here is the great question. I love it so much. Verse 15 there, it says, He said to them, but who do you, you all, if they were in the south, they're not, they're in the north, but he would say y'all, kind of funny, but it is plural, right? Who, who do you disciples? Not just Peter, but Peter likes to answer questions and he represents them. So who do you all, you disciples, say that I am? Did you notice the slight shift? It's fundamentally the same, but it's slightly a different question. Who do you say that I am? Not who Messiah is. Now let's just talk about me in particular. Who do you say that I am? That's the great question, Right? In one sense, that's the ultimate question. It remains the ultimate question. Who do you say that Jesus is? When you look at the historic evidence, when you look at what he did and what he taught, and you evaluate the whole thing, which is what they're going to do, and you have to say, here's who he is. What do you say? It's the question. It's the question of today, right now. It's the question of questions. Then the answer, the answer comes in verse 16. Simon Peter... I would take it as the spokesman of all of them because he's asked all of them. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. And we'll stop there just momentarily. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised king, the one we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3, the one who would be not a tyrant king, not an abusive king, but who would provide, who would protect, who would take care of, who would shepherd. you're, You're the one. And he's got the right answer. This is the great answer. If we were here long enough to appreciate this, we would be here all day long. He, he's hit the nail on the head. You're the one. You're the Christ. If you're new to the Bible, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So Old Testament Messiah, New Testament Christ. It means anointed one. There have been many lowercase c Christs because there have been many kings. Okay, there have been many lowercase m messiahs because there have been many kings. Because when a king is established as a king or, or inaugurated as a king, there would be a ceremony and they would be anointed with oil. So it means anointed one. But officially it means king. Here Peter is saying, you're not a Christ. He's saying you're not a messiah. You are the Christ. You're the one. You're the one. You're the one prophesied in 2 Samuel chapter 7 who would rule and reign forever and ever. You're the one we've been waiting for. Then let's go after the comma. And it still is good. It doesn't get any less good. 
Okay? After the comma in verse 16, the Son of the living God. Let's start with immediate setting. They're in Caesarea Philippi. Idols all over the place. And what do you do with these idols? Well, you know, we, they're hungry, so you gotta bring them some food. And never mind the fact that the food never goes away till we take it away. Never mind the fact that we made them with our own hands. Never mind the fact that they're decaying. Never mind the fact they never answer. By way of contrast, Jesus, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the true God, who is alive, who's not served by human hands. Compared to all other gods, you're the, you're the son of that God. The son of the living God. Surely that's to be emphasized. Surely the fact that if he's the son of the living God who will rule and reign forever, he's divine. Because if the living God has a son, he's divine. If he's going to rule and reign forever, he's divine. There's probably also something else Peter is declaring in his great confession. By acknowledging he's the son of the living God, he's acknowledging he's the ultimate son. He's not any lesser son who's come before. He's the ultimate son. He's the one. And I would just remind you ever so quickly, remember back in chapter 2, we learned that the boys are being executed and so they take Jesus to Egypt and then they're going to come back eventually and it was to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I've called my son. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 2. Out of Egypt I've called my son. And I've emphasized this a lot. I'll keep emphasizing it because we're trying to understand the whole book. It quotes Hosea chapter 11 in Matthew 2. And in Hosea chapter 11, it's not talking about Jesus. It's clearly talking about the nation of Israel who's called God's son. There's a sense in which they were God's son. They're special. They were unique. They were inheritors as sons did in the ancient world. I hope you see where I'm going. Peter's got it right. Jesus is going to affirm him. You are the, the son of the living God. Yes, there have been other sons, but you're the ultimate son. You're the faithful son where all other sons have been less than faithful. Maybe they've done some good things and some bad things, but now we're talking about a whole other category. So this is where when we study the Bible, we talk about there were shadows, there were types, there were prefigurements, there were anticipations, and now we have the son. The real thing has arrived, and Peter says it. The real thing. This morning, when I was getting ready, reviewing my notes, I came across this part, and I said that the real thing. And then I was compelled to press my Siri button on my phone or say it. I'm not going to say it because I don't activate your phone. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Sure enough, Siri starts playing the song Marvin Gaye, and I thought, I love it. What that has to do with this, I don't know. Other than he's the real thing, right? Not the imitation, not the picture, which actually is what that song is about. It's not the picture. It's not the, the lesser anticipator, uh, the ones that, that have anticipated. There's nothing like the real thing. And Peter's saying, you're the real thing. Maybe this helps us to know why they're not in Jerusalem. And they can even be in pagan land because he is the temple. He is the son. He is the fulfillment. He is the substance of the whole He's the one human history 
has been waiting for. And now the affirmation by Jesus comes. We better keep moving. I'm having a little too much fun this morning preaching. The affirmation of Jesus comes in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed or blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah is what he's saying. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's saying something amazing about Peter, but it's not actually about Peter, right? Peter, you are blessed of God because of your heritage, Simon Barjona? No. Because you're so smart? No. Because you're so quick on the uptake spiritually? No. And the list could go on and on with a bunch of no's. Peter, you are blessed extraordinarily so. You've got the right answer. But let me tell you, it doesn't come because of who your father was or anybody else. It comes to you because what? God, my Father, has revealed this to you. That's why you have the right answer. That's why you have the right answer. It's, it's, a, it's a great point. It's, a, it's an amazing point. I've been saying for a long time, and I'll keep saying, the gospel accounts are amazing because Jesus does amazing things, and Jesus is amazing. They're also amazing because Jesus also oftentimes interprets the meaning of things. So it's not left up to us. How did Peter come up with the right answer? Well, he's so smart. He's so special. He's so wonderful. You know, or whatever it might be. No, Jesus interprets it for, for us. Peter saw all of these historic events, objective eyewitness, time after time after time after time with the other apostles. But he doesn't conclude the wrong thing. He doesn't conclude spiritually that 2 plus 2 is 17 or 1, which people have been doing. He's the devil or whatever it might be. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood, that would be any human instrumentality, you or someone else or something else. No, heaven has helped you, right? Heaven has revealed it to you. Heaven, the Father, and we could read into this based upon other texts, through the supernatural agency means of the Holy Spirit, has opened your eyes. And I would like to encourage you with this because we know in light of other texts, anytime someone looks at the historical events, anytime someone looks at the data and the facts and concludes the right thing about Jesus, it's not because they were so smart. It wasn't because you're so good at evangelism. It wasn't because you're related to the right people. It's because the sovereign God through the power of His Spirit has made it clear. He's revealed it. And so we say, blessed of God. We say, blessed of God. It's a miracle that people would look at the data. And we know this, especially in light of the fact that sin is, is spiritual blinding because of the effects of the fall, because of the effects of sin. To conclude the right thing is to be blessed of God. And so I, I would say, everyone who's a Christian, this would apply to. If you're a Christian... It wasn't because of flesh and blood. It wasn't because of human instrumentality or human manipulation or means that you're a Christian. It was the work of God. It's a miracle that anyone would ever believe. And I I think that should encourage us. We know how to interpret people who believe in Jesus. The regenerative work of the Holy Spirit has been involved by the Father. Cool stuff, huh?
I think it's super cool. Praise be to God because he's the one that brings the blessing. Maybe one more thing to say before we move on, uh, just to kind of throw a cat among the pigeons, um, to stir you up theologically a bit and get you to go, hmm. We should notice that there are lots of people who don't conclude the right thing. Right? We've been seeing it in the gospel account. So let's be careful to not suggest, when we're forgetting about passages like this, that God is obligated to make this true for everyone. Maybe it's a bit of a mystery to us as to why he doesn't. I don't know all the answers to all the questions. But I do know that God is sovereign and God is free to do what he wants to do. And here, Jesus isn't complaining about that. He's saying, blessed are you because you have experienced the work of God in your life. Now for some ramifications. And the ramifications are seismic. They are enormous. It says this in verse 18, and I tell you, and let's, let's interpret that in light of what we know. I, I who am the Christ, right? The son of the living God. And if we would even go beyond this, we could maybe go to what we know is going to be said about him in chapter 28 in light of what he will do. The one who has all authority, right? I, the one who knows things. Right? Like no one knows things. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whatever that means, it's a big deal. I think we can all agree to that. Peter's just said something extraordinary. And now Jesus is saying, no doubt, something extraordinary back to Peter. How much time do we have to talk about this? Well, I have to get to another service in a little bit, so we don't have too much time. So, controversial passage um, for different reasons. And there are people I really admire who are Bible-believing evangelicals, would be with us on the gospel, that I would have disagreements over uh, the, the meaning of the passage. We might have some disagreements among ourselves. We can keep this an in-house issue, unless you think this means he's the first pope. Um, I don't think it means that at all. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of dialogue back and forth, forth about this. And it's important dialogue. But my view is to take it as simple as it can be so the simplest way, and I'm not even, I'm not trying to be arrogant about it at all. There's some good views and good scholars who hold different views. In all sincerity, I mean that. Just face value, as simple as it can be. He's making a play on words, okay? And he says, you are Peter, Petros, means rock, Petros. You are rock, his name means rock. You are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, very similar word without the S. Pet, it also means rock, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not, not prevail against it. First blush, ask the person on the street what it means, whether it's in English or Greek. Peter, you are rock, 
And on you, I'm going to build my church because I'm going to build my church on rock. I think that's what it means. Now, maybe the other big view amongst evangelicals, he's not building the church on Peter or the apostles. He's building it on Peter's profession. Could be because Peter has the right profession. Okay, that would be the other big view. I take the view he's going to build his church on the apostles because the apostles are the foundation of the church. I didn't just give away the farm. I didn't just affirm the Council of Trent. I didn't just affirm that Peter's the first pope. I didn't do any of those things. So I'm going to side with John Brodus in his classic commentary, D.A. Carson in his classic commentary, and the Reformation Study Bible. Okay? So I'm in good, good company. You might be in good company with your scholars. Fine, good, we'll be friends. But you need to know Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Also inspired by an apostle, Ephesians 2.20 says this that the church is built on the foundation of what? The apostles and prophets. And the chief cornerstone is Christ. So we're not leaving Christ out. He's the chief cornerstone, most important. But he himself has built his church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so I think that complements the view I'm trying to say to you, I think is the simplest view and the, the most natural way to take this. The church is built on Jesus, the cornerstone, apostles and prophets after him. It's the way he's chosen to do things. The Reformation Study Bible gives us four major views, but it does say this, and I'll, and I'll quote it to you. It says this, if it had not been for the abuse of this passage by the Roman Catholic Church, it is likely that any doubt, like, unlikely that any doubt would have arisen that the reference is to Peter. It's the most straightforward one. And I have no problem saying the apostles were unique. You had to see Christ, the resurrected Christ, with your own eyes to be qualified to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, there's unique authority if you're an apostle. Okay? It doesn't mean you know everything. It doesn't mean you're awesome. Peter's going to crash and burn after this. But when they speak and act as apostles, they're extraordinary. That's why the apostle Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians or the Ephesians or the Colossians or anyone else, he doesn't say... I, Paul, tell you things. I, Paul, an apostle, think authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as good as red letter. It's as good as red letter. And so I would affirm, you know what? Jesus has chosen to build his church on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They were unique. We're not them. But it is how he's chosen to do it. That's why we have all these letters written by them. Okay? If we had more time, we could do more. I would commend to you the Reformation Study Bible notes. I think they're quite helpful working through the different views um, and the nuances and in, in and outs. But there are other good resources as well. If you'd like to have um, my notes, you're welcome to those also. kind of messes up our hymnody though. And that's where real controversy lies, right? Martin Luther said when Satan fell, he landed in the choir loft. Uh, controversy, right? Uh, right, because I, I love the song and I'll keep singing the song. The church's one foundation is the apostles and prophets. No, I'm not going to sing it that way, but that's what Ephesians 2 says. So maybe I'll try, I'll try better. The church's one foundation is Jesus, the cornerstone. That doesn't really work either. I'm just going to sing it the good old way. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you can just know that in my mind, I'm thinking chief cornerstone built upon the apostles and prophets, and it's all good. Fair? Can we still be? We don't have to have a church split over this. I don't think we do. Um, 
And I am way, 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 way more successful, by the way, when I'm debating my Roman Catholic friends if I take that view, even against their positions, than if I try to do the other view that they seem to see through rather quickly. Okay, enough of that. That took us too long, I realize. And now let's talk about some vital questions that would relate to this issue that we're talking about here. And the first question I want to ask you, and these are implications, these are ramifications that would affect Omaha Bible Church. First one is, who again is going to build the church? It's right there, right? Jesus says, I will build my church. And I want to stress to you that we need to always remember that. I will build my church. He doesn't say they should build the church. He doesn't say by extension, eventually, once we start talking about the church, the church will build the church, or you're going to hire whatever marketing firm to build the church, or you're going to convert people or do whatever it is. No, I will build my church. It's what he does. The next similar question, which is rather simple, and maybe I should have asked asked it first, Whose church is it that he's building? He says it's his church, right? It belongs to him. I will build my church. And again, this is super obvious, but I have to remind myself again and again and again and again as a pastor and as a Christian, it's not my church. It's not your church. It's not a country club. It's not some other kind of club. It's his church. And so his church belongs to him. That means sometimes when I don't want to do what the Bible says, I should do it anyway because this isn't a club. And when I want to do things the Bible forbids, I should do the right thing and not do the wrong thing because I'm a Christian and this is a Christian church. To the degree, my friends, that we can remember, 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 it's His church. He's going to build it. We'll be more careful. I've used the illustration uh, time and time again. You know, if I drive my car a certain way and I might throw trash in the back seat, but if for some reason I have to borrow your car, I'm not only going to not throw trash in the back seat, I'm going to maybe tidy it up a little bit before I get it back to you because it's not mine. I'm going to be careful. And so I want to be careful. This is not ours. This doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. If it's a true church, let's be really careful with how we function and what we do. It's his. We belong to it, but it's actually his. Some other ramification kind of questions that I think might be helpful. And that's, What can stop the church from being built? What can stop the church from being built? Let's keep reading, if you would, in verse 18. I, that's the one who is Christ, who is the son of the living God, the one who has all authority, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That sounds strong, because it is strong. I am the one. Nothing can stop this from happening. Even the most hellacious, horrific evil that you can possibly even imagine cannot stop me from doing this. And my question to you all is, what's the most hellacious, evil, wicked thing that's ever been done in human history or ever will be done? There's a huge hint behind me right here. They crucify the one who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the apex high of Demonic evil carried out by human hands as it talks about in the early chapters in the book, of, the book of Acts. And Jesus is making it clear, not even that will stop me from doing it. Right? Because we know how the story goes. He will be victorious and he will be raised from the dead. Nothing can stop him from building his church. It's going to happen. That doesn't, that's no guarantee he's going to build this church. 
There are such things as bad churches. Read the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. But his true church, where it exists, is going to be built no matter what. And that should embolden us. It should encourage us. It should motivate us. Nothing will stop that from happening. Oh, I have more questions. Um, How about this? What else has he promised to build? I can't think of anything, really. That doesn't mean there aren't important things. The Bible talks about other important things in life. That's why we're not here 24-7 huddled up in our holy huddle. There are other important things in life. But there's actually only one thing I can think of that he said he himself will build and absolutely nothing will stop it from happening. That's compelling to me. It makes me want to be a part of it. I hope it's compelling to you. And then we have one more portion to do and then we'll wrap up. And it's commonly skipped. So how many Bible studies or how many sermons, we, we talk about all these things, it's awesome, it's amazing, it's great, but we don't keep reading, and I think we probably need to keep reading, but it's going to start to make us feel maybe uncomfortable. Here's where Pat needs to remember, it's not your church, Pat, okay? Um, he says in verse 19, I will give you, he's been talking to the apostles, Peter's been speaking on their behalf, he's going to tie in the church to this. And he explicitly will tie in the church in chapter 18. So I will give you, you apostles, but it's going to extend eventually. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. That's interesting. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What do keys do? Well, that's a pretty simple answer. Keys unlock things. What else do they do? They lock things. And actually, we should be aware of that because he's actually going to talk about that. Keys unlock things. Keys lock things. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is, a, this is extraordinary. What? What an amazing thing. And it doesn't take a, a genius to figure out that the church unlocks heaven for people. How? We unlock heaven because we, we tell people what, what Peter himself said. Right? We we tell them the the truth about Jesus so that they also can know the facts and say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? That's what we do. We tell people the truth about Jesus' life and about His crucifixion and about His resurrection and His ascension. And we, we urge people to believe in Jesus and we tell people, if you believe in Jesus, you will be, the Bible says, saved. He came to save His people from their sins. So we have the keys to unlock heaven. And the church has been given the responsibility to proclaim Christ, to unlock heaven for people. We can't change people's hearts, but we can proclaim the message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10 says. And so let's be renewed in our commitment to to know what the gospel is and to know what the gospel isn't. And as a church, a local church, wanting to be part of Christ's church, We're clear on proclaiming Christ and it's such a privilege and an honor for us because it unlocks heaven for people. That makes me all the more enthusiastic, all the more committed, all the more devoted. I want us to do that. I want us to be those kinds of people. It unlocks heaven. Next question is, how does the church lock heaven? 
I will answer it two ways. First of all, by implication, we do tell people, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're under condemnation. John chapter 3, verse 18. So it's the negative side of things. Uh, I think the Apostle Peter did this in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. If you're going to reject Christ, heaven is locked to you. I think we're on pretty safe ground. There's one more aspect to all this that's important. And that is when we look at Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 together, he's going to use the same verbiage about binding and loosing with these keys, unlocking and locking, and he relates it to church discipline. And when it gets to step four of church discipline, the church has the responsibility to lock. I don't know about you, but that causes me, if it's true, we're going to see. Maybe, maybe my view of our responsibility is higher than I thought it was. Sometimes we're afraid of this kind of thing because there have been a lot of bad things done in the name of church authority. But what we don't want to do is say there have been bad things and so we pendulum swing and now there's no authority. Let's take a little bit closer look as to what Jesus says here. He says in verse 19 toward the end there, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So heaven agrees with what you're doing there because you have this unique special servant authority. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Heaven agrees with that as well. Locking, unlocking. He says the same thing in Matthew 18. So in Matthew 18, when it, where it gets to step four, and eventually you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, they're no longer welcome. He says, verse 18, it's easy to remember, Matthew 18, 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Huh. That just also elevated my view of Matthew 18 as to what he's talking about. Unlocking and locking heaven? That's really sobering to me. To be quite honest, that scares me. That's very sobering and very scary. Lest you think this is just pat, like making things up and you've all joined the religion of pattyanity, which just sounds terrible. And it would be. Um, look at Matthew 16, look at Matthew 18, compare the two. And I'll also speak historically. Uh, this is how those who've come from the Protestant Reformation heritage have commonly spoken about these things. I'll quote the Heidelberg Catechism from the Protestant Reformed Church written in 1563. So we're coming out of the Protestant Reformation, early days, 1563. Heidelberg Catechism, question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? That's the question. Answer, the preaching of the holy gospel and church discipline. It is the common historic Protestant reform view. We unlock heaven with the gospel. We lock heaven when we tell people if you reject the gospel, it's shut. It's church discipline as well. Very sobering, very serious. 
So I hope what's happened in this study is I hope we've had some highs and lows because we need to be super encouraged and filled with joy and also maybe sober-minded as well. I hope all of that's happened today. I hope it's the lasting after effect as well. Blessed of God to get the right answer. Supernatural. You got it because God revealed this to you, who, who Jesus is. But then Jesus unpacks and goes further. He, in effect, is commissioning the apostles and by extension, because church is talked about in chapter 18, with unlocking, but also locking. And that's a sobering thing. So I hope you're overjoyed. And I hope you realize to be part of the church isn't a game. It isn't a club. It's actually a really important thing. Filled with joy and sobriety, spiritually speaking. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for time in your word. Thank you for the fact that so many of us have a common commitment to following your word where it takes us and certainly following the words of Jesus as recorded in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I skipped the last verse. Um, I've done it every service, so I'm just going to stay consistent. Verse 20 says this, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And I just want you to know I skipped the verse because, because it has absolutely no application in your life. Think about it. He told them to tell no one he's the Messiah because it wasn't time yet, right? And things are unfolding during his time on earth. We're actually commissioned in the Great Commission to tell everyone he's the Christ, right? It's the key that unlocks it. And so just keep that in mind.